You're listening to Three Moves Ahead, the official podcast of FlasherSteel.com. I'm your host, Troy Goodfellow, and with me today are the old dependables. Once again, for the third week in a row, all I have with me are Julian Murdoch, freelance writer. That's, that sounds so sad. I'm not going to like show leftovers. up anymore. If my, if my introduction is... Yeah, well, I guess I can get Julian to show up for anything. <laughs> Let me correct. I, uh, old Dependables is a good thing. That's a compliment. You guys are here. You came in. This is a bit of a pain of a show to schedule for a number of reasons. And you guys pulled through. We pulled through again. Third week in a row. It's a good thing. The Iron Brigade of Three Moves Ahead. That's Freelance Writer. We go. Exactly. Yeah, I, like, I like the Iron Brigade much better. Iron Brigade? I'll take that. We'll see how many bullets you can take. We'll see how iron you are. Yeah, uh, this is... Uh, once again, Tom and Bruce could not make it uh, this week. Uh, last week, I got a form spring question asking, what makes Three Moves Ahead so awesome? And my reply said, well, if you saw me scramble to try to get any podcast scheduled or organized, the awesomeness would vanish from your mind pretty damn quickly. <laughs> uh, that's kind of what it was like uh, this week. Uh, it's been just a really stressful week on my end, and trying to get a topic chosen was a pain, trying to get could anybody come on? Uh, Tom and Bruce. Bruce is, of course, very busy, and Tom, for some reason, has a life now, and we've got to put an end to that pretty damn quick. Jeez. Uh, oh, so uh, they're off doing more important things, and we do hope to have them back next week. But uh, Rob and Julian, who are the Wargaming crew, did a great job. The last two shows and the downloads reflect your interest. So... I'm sure we'll do just fine. I'm not saying I don't want Tom and Bruce to come back. They're still part of the show, uh, but they're not here tonight. Uh, so tonight's show is inspired by uh, the game I just blogged about uh, yesterday, uh, just released uh, from Longbow Digital Arts. It's a uh, small company based in my favorite city in the world and the city where I spent my happiest years, Toronto, Ontario. Uh, they've done mostly arcade games and for the last five years have been building this real-time strategy game based on the career of Philip of Macedon, Alexander the Great's father. It's called Hegemony, uh, Philip of Macedon. It is a very interesting game. I will be uh, reviewing it for Game Shark. Uh, Bill Abner is a big Alexander fan, so he thinks that there should be a review and at least some coverage for this game, so I'm going to be reviewing it for the site. And as I play it, I realized, you know, there really aren't many Greek games. Now, I mentioned this in my uh, long series on ancient Roman games, that the list of Greek games would be very similar to the list of Roman games, uh, as far as ancients are concerned. Um, and certainly, even fewer that are pre-Alexander. It's really Alexander or nothing. Uh, and there's really no Philip. So this is really kind of a forgotten front. Uh Philip of Macedon, the great leader who unifies Greece under the sword and the boot heel, um, has been kind of neglected by strategy gamers. So I thought, for a topic, uh, we could brainstorm and think about, you know, historical moments or speculative fiction or something that we think has been ignored by strategy gamers. Things that would make a great game. Now, of course, what makes a great game is not always the period of history you're really interested in. There's some great periods of history that would make terrible games for one reason or another. Uh, because you can't can't balance it or model it, and also to understand why certain areas of history are ignored by strategy gamers. Um, so, uh, where are we at? Uh, Julian, you want to start us off? Oh, sure. I'm going to go straight to uh, something you're all just going to disagree with, because it has been done a bunch, and it's going straight into the speculative realm, but I actually don't feel like the strategy genre treats Tolkien with very much respect. Right. I mean, I remember when I was a kid playing this great chip based war game on the War of the Ring where you had like little chips that had pictures of Ents on them and everything. And I can't think of sort of a real grand treatment in the video game world of Tolkien that was actually any good. So so convince me I'm wrong. Well, I, I mean, I haven't played uh, it's Battle for Middle Earth, right? Well, but I thought Battle from Middle-Earth kind of sucked. I mean, you didn't it was like, like... You didn't like Battle from Middle-Earth or Battle from Middle-Earth 2? Not really. I mean, I'm talking like at a grander scale. I'm talking okay, at a campaign right. level. I'm right, not okay, talking about... Right. I mean, it's fine. So I can get my orcs and they can go beat up on elves. Right? Okay, That's fine. Right. 
right? But those are very, to me, those still feel very tactical. I'm talking right. Battle of Five Armies, right? right. I'm talking I, at the scale that we, you know, we were just talking sure. about, um, you know, Gettysburg, where you're putting, you know, sort of big unit movement kind of scope on things, where you're dealing right. with whole, you know, giant, you know, I don't even what the, I don't know what the Tolkien word would be would be for a battalion or whatever, but um, you know where you're dealing with sort of units of 500 of this and 200 of that, right? right? That scope really really inspired me as a kid when I was reading those, and it really actually sparked my interest in in strategy and in war gaming. And and I was lucky at the time to actually have a couple of war games that were themed that way. And then mm-hmm. I, that sort of drove me to really learn history more. Right. Um, you know, and to go back and learn about the Peloponnesian Wars and et cetera. And, and, and I just really feel like that's been given short shrift and it's just orcs versus elves. Well, I mean, let me, let me throw a theory out there. Um, one of the things I think that sort of works against um, a good uh, a good strategy game portrayal of Tolkien is that Tolkien's very historically accurate in a weird way. He's he's trying to bring across, um, you know, you know, amidst all the magic and the magical creatures and all that stuff, he's he really does a very good job of sort of modeling, uh, sort of portraying the way. Um, you know, medieval armies would fight, and you know, early medieval armies would fight. I mean, there's a, there's a comment that one of the uh, you know human characters make makes toward the end of the trilogy where they're invading uh, Mordor, and he says, you know, we're we're invading Mordor with the greatest host we can assemble, and it wouldn't have even been the vanguard of the old armies that we used to field. And I think one of the things in Tolkien is that you you've got a lot of surprisingly small scale. Um, you know, a lot of small-scale engagements. They they sound very epic, but the good guys are always so incredibly outnumbered. Um, I don't know. It's just I, I'm not I'm not sure they make the best terrain for a first strategy game. I don't know. I mean, I think about the battle for five armies, which was one of my very first experiences with this idea of mm-hmm. the epic battle. Right, which went on for days and featured, you know, cavalry coming in over at the last minute. And, you know, it really had, and, and I've just recently reread that to my kids over the last couple of years, you know, and it really does convey the, uh, an incredible feeling of this epic battlefield with, with huge troop movements moving around and last minute, uh, you know, uh, you know, last minute recoveries and, you know, certain defeat and all that stuff. And, and, I, I so rarely get that feeling from games that I feel like I want to go back to that. So maybe it's not so much that I want it to be Tolkien, but I want right. it to have that feel to it, that scope, that scale. And I feel like so many of our video games have gotten narrower and narrower, which is great. I love Advanced Squad Leader, too. I love controlling one guy. But right. but I feel like very few of our games actually step back. Well, there was an old uh, Amiga game called uh, War in Middle Earth, the late 80s. Ooh, which is kind I, of, I've never played that. It's kind of a strategy RPG type thing. It had some role-playing elements as well. Um, I played it a few times, and I, I'm only remembering it the, very vaguely. But as I recall, you were moving quite large armies around, but they would just be you know, signified on the map. And you could uh, play out smaller battles in real time. But once your army began to got to a certain size, they would just say, we're just going to auto-general this, because, you know, we're not going to show you 5,000 orcs, okay? Uh, <laughs> it's because, forget it, we're just not going to bother doing that. Um, and it's like a war in Middle-earth, and I think it's 87, 88, something way back. Um, and I played it sometime in the early 90s, uh, and I vaguely remember it. Um, but yeah, I mean, the idea of I mean, in, along the, the same line, something that hasn't been done, and HBO is doing a series on uh, the Song and Ice of Fire series, the uh, J.R.R. Martin uh, dark fantasy, high fantasy, well, I guess it's low fantasy, low fantasy because there's really not a lot of magic in it, uh, world, it's kind of a War of the Roses type thing, medieval combat, it's all about armies moving around, but it's, what makes those books interesting is the armies are so much off-screen. I think there's one battle scene in the entire books that's told in any detail. Everything else is wars and rumors of wars more than anything else. There's a very good board game uh, based on that. Excellent, excellent board game. I mean, it's one of my favorite light war games of all time. And I think it would make a great and interesting uh, computer strategy game somewhere along the lines of uh, Crusader Kings, the paradox medieval 
uh, soap opera sure, game where you sure. manage you manage a dynasty uh, and you try to claim the throne and all this other stuff going on, or like Kingmaker, which is based on Avalon Hill board game. There was a right. um, computer version of that, uh, but yeah, it's the, the same idea of you know trying to get, capture that medieval moment of raising armies and who's loyal to whom and will the riders of Rohan show up will such and such a house uh, pledge allegiance to Tyrion Lannister or whatever to mix the metaphors um, I think you know there really is a lot of room for a good feudal uh, medieval strategy game out there that captures the difficulties of supply and communication and one side's always going to have a lot of problems um, in making sure you have the advantage of numbers. And I think uh, both, I think, I guess what you, whether you think is a good Tolkien game depends on what you think a good Tolkien game is, because the Tolkien path really seems to have gone down the RPG route and not yes. the strategy route. Yes. That's unfortunate. I, to, to, I mean, well, to great effect. I mean, yeah. Lord of the Rings Online is one, if I, I, mean, I think, arguably the best MMO ever released. Hmm. I, unfortunately, it doesn't quite get the respect it deserves. But, I mean, as far as the, the sort of the vision that they went after yeah. and how well it's realized, I love the heck out of that game. Yeah. Well, I mean, is one, one thing maybe working against um, making these games into strategy games, but be it like... Um, you know, a Tolkien universe or, you know, just some sort of feudal setting. Um, is one thing working against it, the fact that so much of these of these wars and so much of what makes for these great dramatic stories is, um, you know, coalition building and relationship maintenance. Sure. Um, I mean, so much of, you know, the, the battles yeah. of Tolkien are, you know, the eagles showing up at the last moment or, you know, finally getting Rohan, you know, on side for the, you know, showdown with uh, Mordor. And... You know, I mean, game, games have a great deal of trouble with even sort of simple balance of power diplomacy. And when you start getting into, you know, the, the weird nuts and bolts of coalition building, convincing people to, um, you know, accept one person's leadership over another, you know, all the stuff that makes makes up an alliance, all the stuff that makes up a complicated, um, you know, story. Mm-hmm. How many, you know, are video games... Um, really equipped to handle that. I think so. I mean, it's not like we're looking for these people to be fully realized characters. I mean, they're going to be leaders of a city, leaders of a feudal of a feudal state, leaders of a country. And, you know, they're going to be, you know, those great moments. I mean, you're a Europa Universalist guy, Rob. You know, those great moments where you pers- finally sucker Scotland to joining you in your war oh, against true. England. You know, it, it just take, it takes some money. Uh, but, you know, it's a good part of the story. Or, or when they're your good friends and then they don't do it. Uh, that's a big part of what makes that game so appealing, too. I mean, you can write the stories and have those moments, but no, you're not going to have the great, rich, and deep characters um, that the Tolkien stories give you, but uh, very few strategy games do give you that. So, Rob, do you have any specific, any favorite eras or speculative fiction that you think's been neglected? Um, you know... I guess you know, the the first thing that, that came to mind actually isn't necessarily an era or um, you know setting. It's it's actually fortifications. Um, you know, if you ever go to you know a fort, you know, not an old castle, but like an 18th century style fort, and you you go you visit. You, I mean, are you talking like earthen works and wood? No, no, I'm more talking about like. Um, you know, if you go to like Fort William Henry or Fort Niagara, mm, mm, um, mm. something like that. Um, you know, when when you get these like 18th century, you know, the star forts, basically. Right, right, right. Um, right. You know, you, you go to these places, and at least for me, I always find my imagination like really captured by them. I mean, they're these really Absolutely. cleverly designed yeah. death machines. You know, where <laughs> I mean, they are like you, you can you can look at them and you can see the sort of nasty mind that went into planning them. Um, you know. Where troops are going to clear this, you know, ravelin, and then they're going to hit raking fire, and then there's going to be flanking fire, and any sort of assault is just going to be this meat grinder. Um, but there's there's like no games that really let you play around with those sort of things. There's no game that lets you be uh, the evil genius designing the fort. Um, you know, and you you get a game like Empire Total War, and the fort the fort battles are a complete disaster because it's basically just troops within a you know. Um, a stockade 
but it's really it has nothing to do with the fortifications of the period. But I don't know. It just seems like with the tower defense genre, you know, being so big, like this seems like a, an idea. An idea whose time has come is just a game where you are Vauban and you are designing uh, the well, best citadels. It's, you it's can. so funny you mentioned this because I've been, I've been, as I think I mentioned last time, I'm building a main cabinet to play all these old arcade games. And the problem is I keep going and like getting sucked into playing games instead of working on building the dang thing. And uh, I played like three hours of Rampart. Rampart. Do you remember yeah. Rampart? Oh, I remember Rampart. And and I mean, talk, I mean, obviously super simplified, simplified. But there is something extraordinarily satisfying about that build the fortification and see how it does genre that is really pretty rare. I mean, city builders have pretty much replaced it. Even a steel castle sim stronghold, uh, right? Was really wasn't about you know building the castles, but making it wasn't about building the castle. It was about it was a city sim, really, um, around the castle, and yes. so you didn't have any of that real fun stuff of you know getting all your arrow slits in the right area and the like. Right, make sure your murder hole was in the right place. You know, is there any better word in military history than oh, murder hole? It's just the bomb. I, I have to give a shout. If since we're talking about fortifications, I have to give a shout out to the stuff, the stuff you should know podcast, which recently did one on castles, where they talked about like the the development of murder holes. It's a beautiful thing. Anyway, sorry. Well, no, but that, I mean that that sounds great, and I'll definitely give that give that a listen. But I mean is, that that's what I'm talking about, though, is that there's just such wonderful engineering and vicious inventiveness that goes in them it's like dungeon keeper but for reals you know um right. and right. and that's what I, that's what i'd really love it's just a game that um you know not as simple as tower defense where you just you know set up a path and let guys walk into it and you shoot them and the whole thing is like can you kill them before they reach the end but just something that really satisfies the you know get, gets the the building part right where you get lots of you know fun options for creating the the perfect castle or fort and then you know, just just lets you slaughter people <laughs> like that. I mean, that's that's really what I that's really what I want. That's pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, I I agree, I agree, and and you'd think that people would be more on top of that because it's certainly not difficult to imagine the gameplay. I mean, honestly, you could take the basic design of Rampart and just say, okay, well, let's make this something. You know, for the modern age, where instead of just dropping little pieces of wall and figuring out where your cannons are going to go, you add about a thousand levels of complexity to it, and I think it would be a blast. Area design would be easy. You just the the, the king gives you a, the, a specific budget. You have so much of a budget. Here's your terrain. Yeah. Here's your Here's, terrain. Yeah, exactly. And it's adapting the fort to the terrain. And you could easily imagine it, it like having a sort of a time-based mechanic where you like you start out developing like the simplest wooden fortifications, and then you move up towards developing things that have to defend from, you know, uh, you know, seaborne, you, know, you know, mortar fire, right? <laughs> right. And oh god, yeah, that that right there as well. The the whole like the whole like. Um, Way sieges could work in that game, where you've got like trenches being dug around around your uh, your fort, and you're sending out engineering parties and trying to set up the right countermines and trying to you know stymie their progress in one area, and then they open up a new line of trenches somewhere else. Like I mean, there's there's a lot that went into uh, you know the the 18th century style formal siege, mm-hmm. and I think there could be a really fun game there um, with you know lots of kinetic action you know that could satisfy pretty much anybody but it's just it it's nobody nobody's nobody's explored it jonas you've just come up with two new podcast topics here which come up with modeling the feudal world and sieges and fortifications and strategy games there we go see we're all about making your life easier troy yeah and if you podcast could... schedules keep falling apart you'll be hearing those topics next week and the week after <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah, that's an, I mean, as far as game mechanics, I'm trying to think of any game mechanics that I think haven't been, that I would love to see more of. So I'm more interested in specific periods and settings and mechanics, because I think the periods actually suggest some of the mechanics. Well, where do you think, what do you think but, has been missed in terms of periods? I mean, you well, mentioned sort of Greece, but what well, else? Well, I mean, I've always been drawn to, um, once again, the 18th, I think the 18th century, 19th century, great period of history, uh, the Indian subcontinent. The, we have lots of games about trading in yep. India and conquering India. Really, none about you know what's it like to actually be the East India Company, 
a nothing company showing up and trying to negotiate your way uh, through Indian politics. It's a setting that has culture clash, you have problems of missionaries, you have imperialism, you have commercial pressures, and you have all the great fun of uh, diplomacy. Now, once again, this is going to depend heavily on diplomacy, um, and that's always going to be a bit problematic. But I think you know, the Indian subcontinent has such a rich and beautiful and wonderful history. And I think the decline of the Mughal Empire and the rise of the British Empire – um, in the 18th and 19th centuries is such a great story with so much potential for uh, you know, military intrigue and espionage and economic development that uh, it's really astonishing. It hasn't really been done well, um, if at all. I think there was one game back in the early 90s. Um, I forget what it was called, something about the Raj. You have to have the Raj in the title somewhere um, that really captured it. And um, Paradox is Victoria has that uh, in the ninth, but that, but that's well after all the fun stuff, well after Clive and Hastings and all those great uh, British governor generals and viceroys uh, kicking butt um, in that period. So you know, I, th- I think that'd be a, a nice setting. I th- maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I'm the only person who thinks that Clive is one of the great geniuses of uh, p- British military history. You know, he always shows up with five guys. And ends up beating huge armies. He's like Leonidas with you know a chip on his shoulder. Um, so maybe that's just me. Yeah. No, I mean I, I don't know. I think the I mean the whole idea what you said what you said there at the beginning. The you know what would it be like to be the East India Company? And not the East India Company is portrayed in that game, yeah. but the the actual East India Company where you, where you occupy this weird space. Yeah, between being like a nation state and a company and a mercenary, and you're all these things at once, um, where you are you are practicing statecraft, you are waging full scale wars, but you also got to turn a profit. It, it'd be like it'd be like colonial XCOM almost, wouldn't it? Colonial XCOM. Like colonial XCOM. I like that. Have you have your 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 musketman and your cannon guy? That's pretty much it for Colonial XCOM, I would assume. Uh, Yeah, I mean, East India Company really didn't capture what the East India Company was about, uh, because it didn't have any of the diplomatic stuff, and didn't have all the... One of the East India Company's biggest problems was, of course, the crown back home. And the game East India Company has you pretty much being the crown. You really... They cast you as this private company, but it's not like the government really interferes all that much, or... uh, has to back you up when you make some stupid mistake, which the real East India Company kept from going back to the king and the prime minister over and over again, saying, well, I just, sorry, I just conquered a bunch of India for you. Um, what do you want me to do with it? Uh, so I, I think that would, I think that's an interesting time period, interest, lots of interesting problems. Um, it's, you know, it's too much to say that Victoria and that England inherited an empire in a fit of absence of mind, but, you know, there's all that, all those communication issues where how much can you get away with before the king finds out what you're doing and tells you to stop? Right. I think that would be a, a neat dynamic to capture, plus all the imperial wars going on. You have the French and the Portuguese, you know, setting what up their toeholds. So what what about what about uh, sort of conflicts that are still sort of two third rail to to really be well done? I mean, ha- yeah. how many how many conquest of the Western United States games have we seen, oh, which man. would which would involve you know slaughtering millions of you know indigenous peoples, etc. I mean, but but from a strategy perspective. You know, you look at, you know, uh, any number of, of battles that happened in the conquering of the West, uh, and they're strategically interesting. However, they're so hot button, I can't think of a single game that actually... Yeah, see, I, don't, I don't even think they're strategically interesting. I think they're tact- sometimes tactically interesting, but the strategy is pretty much analogous. You strategy's know, strategy's foregone, yes. It, I, I, I agree, I agree. And it's like civilization's cultural boundaries. Civilization for the cultural boundaries just pass out, and people just end up moving there, and the government backs them up. Um, as far as a strategic, I'm not sure how strategically interesting it is. But yeah, I mean, the issue of, you know, third rail hot button issues, I mean, there's, I mean, of course, within strategy games, there are a lot of things you can't do. Um, I mean, we don't have a lot of games on the, we have a lot of war games about battles uh, between the Arab, Arab and Israeli, in the Arab-Israeli wars, but nothing about, no games about, very few good games about surviving as Israel 
or Congo, I guess. No, I guess we do. Conflict Middle East. And but that, but but we're digging deep into yeah. the geek well, right? Oh, I mean, yeah, yeah. We're not right. talking about anything remotely mainstream. We're talking about games. That oh sell, yeah, sell yeah, cause, cause, yeah because because hegemony Philip of Macedon is going to be a huge hit. <laughs> well, actually, <laughs> that's going to sell thousands. One thing, one thing I'm I'm curious about because I haven't had time to uh, play with the demo at all. Yeah. Um, and you know, I don't want to you know steal your reviews thunder at all. But I mean, one thing that that has always occurred to me, I, I love ancient Greece. Um, it's one of my favorite topics from a international relations political point of view. From a military history point of view, you know, I, I run into problems with. I, I guess I just don't find it all that interesting. I mean, that you know, our accounts of the naval warfare tend to indicate there's, you know, a couple go-to tactics that you know they'd rely on and. That's what that's what they basically use in every right. battle, um, and the same goes for land warfare. Um, you know, the the phalanx just does not make for an interesting war game. Uh, and I guess I'm I'm curious how does uh, how does Ma- how does Philip of Macedon get around that? Well, it's a strategy game, not just a, not just a war game. It doesn't just have the battles. You have to right. manage, you know, capturing the cities and supplying them and cutting your enemies' supplies. I haven't played my, that much of it. I'm only just getting into it, so I can't. Uh, say too much about how good it is, uh, but it's a strategy game. It's not just about it's not just about the tactics. In fact, at this time period, tactics are evolving. Uh, it's not just it's not just you know a uh, bunch of hoplites banging into each other and then setting up a trophy. Uh, that's it. This isn't. And by the time you get to the Peloponnesian War, you get some really neat, ha- interesting stuff happening. You have the rise of peltasts, and of course, the Macedonians have cavalry as their arm of decision. Um, which is a Thessalian uh, thing. Um, and see, the Peloponnesian War is an interesting strategic problem, an interesting strategic game, because Athens is a naval power and Sparta is a land power, and how do they end up banging into each other? And that's once again, becomes a very difficult uh, strategic problem for both of them to solve. So, I mean, it, I think it's a little bit... Are, are hoplite battles themselves interesting? No, but you know most battles. World War One's not interesting for the very same reason as a war game. Uh, as a strategy game, once you get above the battlefield level, lots of neat stuff can happen, um, especially uh, in the ancient Greek world because you have city states. You don't have a whole lot of territory, and controlling territory is very difficult because the geography makes it almost impossible to control territory, which would make Philip's accomplishments. All the more remarkable, he united Greece uh, at the sword when nobody else could, um, for a number of reasons. So, I mean, that's why the Greek period always interested me, because it's such a decentralized world. It is a place that resists empire, and the ability to build a game and where empire is kind of nebulous, where Sparta's empire is based on reputation, and Athens... Empire is based on uh, coercion coercion and commercial extortion uh, and the power of its navy saying, yeah, we will. I mean, Athens really suckered all of its colonies into the empire. You don't want to provide the ships? We'll we'll provide all the ships. We'll defend you with our navy, but you got to pay us. Then all of a sudden, no one else has a navy. That's kind of a fun little world the Greeks were living in. So, yeah, I mean, I, that's why I think the ancient Greek world is so interesting and why Philip is such a remarkable person. Now, yeah, at the battlefield level, I mean, you look at Alexander, you can't look at Alexander's battles and say they aren't interesting tactically because they just no. are just phenomenal. But yeah, once you get into the pre Peloponnesian hoplite stuff, I'm with you. It's kind of just bang, 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 and that's it. And then somebody runs away and hooray, hooray. Hooray, hooray. Um, so, yeah, I'm trying to think about other periods I'm really missing uh, that I. Would really love to see. I mean, I'm, I kind of like the really weird stuff. No one else is thinking Indian subcontinent. Julian, you're an history, you're a history guy. Yeah, well, I am, but actually, I keep coming to I keep coming to fantasy stuff more than history. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess to some extent, I get a lot of my my history Jones satisfied with board games, right? Because they're board games for everything. I mean, I I, I can't think of a, a a time or a place. In, in actual history that's not covered by some obscure chip-based cardboard war, sure. war game out there. Um, video games, obviously, because they're so much more expensive to make, we tend to get more short shrift. Right. I mean, in, in the, in the science also the, fiction... Also, the, 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 the profit margins are so much more ridiculous in the video game world. I mean, you can make a board game and probably turn a profit selling a few hundred copies or something. 
Well, maybe a few a thousand, maybe, thousand but yeah. yeah, yeah. But but compared to compared to a video game for yeah. sure. Right. I, I feel like sometimes the I, I'm dissatisfied with what's happened to the science fiction genre in strategy games yep. where yep. where I, I, I often feel like the the genre has moved to the end game, right? The end, the the, the, <laughs> the the battle we fight, the strategy, the strategic situation we're trying to resolve is so often sort of empire, right? Take right. over the entire galaxy, and <sighs> I can't think of very many games where we've we've gone all the way back to the beginning and said, well, how about first contact? I mean that to me, I think there's a fascinating issue of first oh, contact. And it, and it, if I think about my favorite, you know, my favorite science fiction novels are things like Ender's Game, which are all about first contact. Have Have you ever read a um a trilogy by Timothy Zahn, the uh, Conquerors trilogy? No, I haven't. I'm writing oh, it's it down. it's really interesting because yeah, it's it's this first contact scenario between. Um, sort of a human-led empire, but it's a real small-scale empire, right? The, the humans have, you know, only found a couple other species, and being nasty humans, they're kind of better armed and kind of domineering, um, and convince themselves they're living this, like, benevolent uh, commonwealth. Um, and they run into a really nasty, terrifying alien race. Um, but what's interesting is, after the first book, which is all this, oh my god, we've, we've encountered this terrifyingly in race and nobody can stop them, the second book leaves that entirely, and it's told from the alien race's point of view. And it's this completely different culture, and it's them trying to figure out what to make of these humans, because there is absolutely no communication happening between the two. And... Um, yeah, you know, the, the the customs are so very different. So you get the, you get this really interesting where it, where it gradually dawns on you that each side has these wildly diverging perspectives on their own strengths and weaknesses and the strengths mm-hmm. and weaknesses of their opponents. Um, and it, it, it just it, that's exactly it's exactly the sort of thing you're talking about where where you're dealing with really different. Uh, sides and really well defined sides. They want um, it's very clear what they want and what e- what each society is about. It's not these generic empires clashing, but these really individualistic, um, you know, co- civilizations clashing. And it's just it makes it really it makes it really fascinating, especially because there is no diplomacy window that either side can open up. You know, it's it's all sort of trying to grope your way towards a communication. Yep. I don't know. So yeah, that that that's how, that that would be such a cool game because so much of it is just sort of, it's like it's sort of like civilization in space time and again. Right. That would be if I'm trying to how that works the strategy. I think of the whole the whole great mystery of first contact of course is, you know, who are these people? What do they want? Um and then it I could say as a, you know, as a adventure game almost. Right. Right. I mean, it it has it. It doesn't necessarily have to just be traditional military conflict right off the bat. Right. right? I mean, there's there's all sorts of interesting issues that can happen there. I mean, the Ender's Game angle is certainly one where it's just sort of, you know, a big battle against the great unknown, which Mm -hmm. is part of what's so interesting about that. But you can definitely make it more more about the sort of discovery and negotiation process, and then of course the eventual war and extermination. Well, or, or you go like in a Mass Effect or Star Trek um, direction, right? Where like humans, you know, or whatever your race is, you, you're a latecomer on the scene. Where there's already inter- intergalactic politics and empires and you know yeah. institutions to handle um, relations, but you're arriving late to all that. You don't get any say in how it's set up. Yeah. You just have to sort of find, carve out your own place within that system. And grow powerful within it without disturbing people. That, you know, the, the dynamics could be very interesting. Sort of like in, in Mass Effect. Yeah. Or, or Babylon 5, for that matter. Which I yeah. think would have, made, which would have made a great strategy game. Babylon 5 strategy game. Oh, it would have been great, but it would have been all diplomacy. That's the problem. There's war. All kinds yeah, of war. But, but to me, what's so interesting, that the whole, the whole series was based on the politics. Oh, yeah, of and course. My, you gotta have lots of diplomacy, and of course, gotta give Box Lightner a chance to sound important. Gotta have one of his. You gotta have one of his speeches in there. He's not actually that good. But maybe, it's a t- a- maybe it's a T. Maybe it's DLC. Download all the speeches. <laughs> I love Babylon Five. I think it's great. That explains a lot about you. It really does. It really does. It's overacting and it's hokey, but I love it anyway. 
it, it totally is, but it's un it's unrelenting. Yeah. You know what there really aren't enough of for my taste are like um I guess like command simulators. I mean I I mean I'm thinking like you know, you have me thinking in sci fi directions, like I would really like to be Billadama. I would really like to know sort of what it's like to fight a battle star. Oh, you know I mean? like yeah. To really be in charge of like you know setting up you know which which batteries are going to be engaging and how your fighters are going to be behaving and you know all the all these minutia of the ship's systems and right. abilities and you're in command of this this colossal. Did, did, um, didn't Derek Smart make that? <laughs> oh, oh, that's yeah. almost a low blow. What Battlecruiser three thousand? The whole point of Battlecruiser three thousand AD. Your commander. Millennium. You're commanding a huge battlecruiser, and you could right, jump. You could take any role uh, in the ship, right? As long as you played it in Braille, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it only felt like Braille. I'm. I would. Did you actually ever put real time into Battlecruiser Millennium? Uh, Battle, Battlecruiser 3000 AD. I predate Millennium. Yeah, sorry, yeah I did. 3000 AD. I, I, did. I actually did really learn how to play it because I did an interview with him, and I was yeah. doing an article on you know the. The, the brief history of Derek Smart and yeah, that's oh great piece. God, oh, I, mean, I put a, I, I put a lot of time. I, I I also learned how to play it, and it was it was a chore. I I made myself. It? I thought I did to begin with. Oh well, I, I can figure this out. Look, all these neat things can possibly. Then I realized how little of it actually mattered. Right, uh, exactly, and how I it kept crashing. Of course. <laughs> I, I always likened that to the equivalent of like learning how to start your car by going under the hood and figuring out just exactly where to hold the spark plug. Right? I mean, that's exactly what that felt like. It's like every other game you get in the car, you turn on the key because that's the natural way you start an engine. With the Derek Smart game, you go and you actually have to hold all six spark plugs over the cylinders at the same time to get the engine started. Yes. Uh, Derek, please do not write. <laughs> I actually, he's a nice guy. I, I enjoy well, Derek Smart as a person. I really enjoy him. Yes, I've, we've never met. We've exchanged some pleasant conversations uh, online, uh, but please, please don't. So, so this is the missing genre: more Derek Smart games. That's well, I, we that's a simulation. As a simulation, I think it'd be a great, interesting war game. Have a sim, have to actually have you know, a, a, fl- a good fleet simulator, uh, where you are not controlling the ships, but are you know directing them. I suppose. Um, well, to some extent, I think Sins of a Solar Empire did that. I mean, maybe you're talking about something different, but I, I sort of consider Sins of a Solar Empire at, at the extreme edge to be a fleet simulator in sort of that grand fashion. Really? That seems a standard 4X strategy game. Yeah. Yeah, well... Yeah, that's it, true. I mean, no, so that's the genius of, of Sins, that it, it does a great job of looking like all these things. Uh, but I mean, it's it's still a you know a four X RTS. It is pretty it is pretty dirt standard under the hood. But boy, what a pretty hood! All the best games fool us into thinking there's something they're not. <laughs> wow, that was some cough there, Rob. I'm I'm sorry. I'm I'm dying here. Um, but yeah, d- just carry on. <laughs> Oh, but but I mean, it's yeah. not, it's not just it's not just that. I mean, I, I kind of I, I think the the problems of like naval command mm-hmm. have always really interested me. Um, but there's, there's so just, few good real naval simulators, and that seems to be a very tough. Not, we we had a show on that, didn't we? Yeah, we, we had a show about naval. But yeah, how the difficulties of being, I mean, it's doing a naval really, game really really hard to make that work. I don't know why. I I really don't know why it is so hard. I think there are a number of reasons. I mean, first, the water is boring. <laughs> uh, the look at. A, a lot depends on the, the each of the periods to choose. Or, I mean, I think sci-fi might actually work. I mean, they kind of might only work in sci-fi. Well, no, because you can make up the rules. I was really thinking yeah. Napoleonic era. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, I'm thinking. Right. You know, to me, naval combat. Uh, you know, it's Patrick O'Brien. I mean, right. That's, yep. that's what it is. Yep. And and the, I, the only thing I keep coming back to is the terrain is invisible because the terrain of naval combat in that era was the wind, yeah. and that's just impossible to really convey and to make interesting. 
Yeah, I, it's like, exactly. You have a flat plane and you have the, an invisible terrain. Yeah. I mean, that's it's, it, maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's as simple as that. And it's really, you know, the it's a it's a it's a hide and seek game, and that's really what naval combat was about. It was about finding the other guy, uh, and then having the the battle. The battles themselves were, I'm sure, quite tense, but not especially interesting. All the interesting stuff is about finding the other. Well, and and the only interesting parts were about the real seamanship, which happens on the invisible terrain of the wind. Right, right. Which is and there's not, there's never going to be a game where it's like. You're like deploy the top gallant or something like that. that. That game is not going to. Oh, I'm sure Nintendo could make some sailing mama or something, and it would just oh, be a there huge you go. shit. You've heard it here first. <laughs> I think Use the great. motion control to swab out the gun. There you go. That'd be good. There's got to be some Wii sailing game out there. Not necessarily a war game, but about, you know, <laughs> sailing. <laughs> good one but yeah well no almost certainly not a good one uh but yeah why not for those recreational sailors okay we're way off topic um <laughs> did we have a topic Sa- finally we're talking about we're talking about missing genres sailing games is clearly a missing genre hey there's this there's the ship simulator extreme is coming out this year okay so naval warfare sucks that's the three moves ahead verdict Na- yeah, naval warfare is hard to do well. It can be done, uh, but it's very difficult, and you have to you have to cheat to make it work. Did uh, did either of you guys? I mean, this I, did, I didn't have a computer that could run it when it came out, but um, what was it? I think it was a game called Wooden Ships and Iron Men. Oh yes, no way yes. back. I remember that. I remember that looking really cool. And wasn't there some like? Yes, it looked really cool. That's what uh, I remember about. That's what I remember that's, about that game. That's the end of that story. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, once again a lot of the same problems. Of you know, it's I mean, if you you, you can make a good, I'm sure, uh, uh, Napoleonic naval combat game, but it's not going to be anything like a real Napoleonic naval combat game. If you're going to have to do what you know, Empire Total War did and arcade it up a little bit, or what East India Company did and keep the scale really, really small. And turn uh, the rest of the game into an economic simulator. And turn the rest yeah. of you an economic simulator. I mean, you're going to have to cheat. Um, and that's all well and good for me if it's part of another package. Um, if you want to have it just be a game about the naval war, though, then you guys have got to make it about the naval war and not cheat me on what I'm playing. But that's that's my rule. If it's going to be just about that, it's got to be just about that and done well. Makes sense. One thing that drives me crazy is that, you know, you, you've always got people complaining about World War II is played out, and it isn't. World War II is not played out. What's played out is, you know, Stalingrad, D-Day, um, you know, I mean... Battle of the Bulge, Market Garden. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But, I mean, there's... So little has been done with... Um, you know, like North Africa or Italy, especially. I've always found the the whole Italian campaign and, and the fighting in Sicily really interesting. Um, those are interesting campaigns, and they just they they get overshadowed, forgotten about. Um, and that you know that drives me a little crazy. It's the Pacific War is also another one. I mean, there's lots. Of, I like to. I have a good friend who's watching uh, the Pacific on HBO. Um, Daniel, he comes back into uh, chat uh, late at night complaining about how terrible the battle was. Just, oh my god, I had no idea it was so hor- horrible in the Pacific War. Uh, try to read some books, noob. And it's... Uh, <laughs> it's... Uh, I, th- I think a, a, about the a good game with the island hopping campaign. Now, we have played War Plan Pacific, which is a great strategic level fleet management, move around the armies game, but something about actually planning the island hopping games, uh, the island hopping, island hopping campaign from uh, all the way up uh, the, the chain uh, towards Japan. I think those battles are interesting. They're tough and they're bloody and it really, it's a foregone conclusion the Americans are going to win, but you know, it's about the cost and the price you're paying and, you know, can you do better than Nimitz, I guess would be the uh, great challenge. Um, in that theater, and I think there's there's so many great stories, and I think the the both strategic and the logistical masterpiece of that entire campaign, I think, is lost. Frozen, you know, 
average Americans, but on, on gamers in general with this whole European focus on World War Two, that the war in the Pacific was, you know, it was a damn hard thing to fight. Um, uh, and, and, and largely unrelated to Europe. I yeah. mean, the very, like, literally almost nothing is similar about those two conflicts except the years in which they happened. Right. And I, there's probably a really good Pacific War game I'm forgetting. Grigsby's War in the Pacific, but it's, you know, a monster uh, that I just do not have the patience for. Well, and, and certainly there are pieces of there are pieces of the Pacific campaign that haven't even been very well treated in board gaming, right? I mean, yeah. the, I mean, the Chinese involvement in World War II is, mm-hmm. is chronically underrepresented, yeah. largely because it's chronically undocumented. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a, a major part of it. I mean, we, we have detailed, detailed, you know, maps down to the millimeter of every conflict in Europe. And, uh, you know, we have vague ideas that, oh, yeah, the Japanese sort of ran through and raped this part of China at this right. point. And we don't really know exactly where or exactly when or what forces were involved. But we just know that China lost. Right. I mean, we don't really have anywhere near the kind of, uh, you know, epic 2000 page novel versions of those conflicts that we do in Europe. Yeah. No, and it's, it's really a shame, too. I mean, the entire Chinese Civil War. If you want to have your video game banned in China, that would be the subject. The to go. Is, there, is there even a good board game for that? I, I just realized I've never even heard of a board game for that conflict. You know what? I, I'm pretty sure Strategy and Tactics probably did one of those in their, one of their magazines. Oh, yeah, come on. But I'm, but as far as a real... A real Richard you know, Berg fired something up and yeah. punched out a bunch of chits. Yeah, yeah pretty much it. I mean, but, would it be banned? I mean, I mean, cause oh, I'm God, just, yeah. Well, they, I'm just they, thinking, though, there's so many, there's so many iconic. I mean, so much of the Chinese Communist Party's, um, you know, f- foundational myth is in this war. They banned, banned, they, they, they banned Hearts of Iron too because it showed parts of China as the, under the control of warlords. So China is divided in World War Two, and they banned. You can't get Hearts of Iron two in China. Oh Jesus, that's crazy that they even have people to care about Hearts of Iron two is astonishing. <laughs> hey, now Hearts of Iron two is a good game. No, I know, but I'm just—it's like the fact Lots that people that's even on the radar. Yeah, I know it's, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, they also had to change. I mean, Civilization had that same thing. They had to change stuff for the Chinese version. Wow. So, yeah, but if you want to get your game banned in China, do it on the Chinese Civil War. But I, I'm interested in what, you're, what you were saying there, Troy. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. curious what sort of what you'd want more from a Pacific theater war game. Because I oh. mean, if if we say that the strategy levels kind of been done well the strategy at some points been done but really not about you know the managing of the island hop and not the whole logistical stuff the first person who can make a really good interesting logistics war game will be my friend forever logistics is generally boring but actually that's how generals think is in logistics it's about you know not just it's how do you get the men where they have to go safely uh, and the logistics of the Pacific campaign is just a masterpiece, and I think there's you could actually make a good game out of it, um, both military side and the you know the just basic management side. Um, it's you know it sounds logistics sounds boring. It's not glamorous. It's not about killing people. Uh, it's about finding ways to kill people, and that's what war is really about. <laughs> it's not about killing people. It's about Interesting ways of killing people. It's about learning how to kill people <laughs> efficiently and cheaply. Uh, yeah, it's about you know, it. We have games about you know the the fleet movements and killing and landing. Uh, and just bunch of amphibious ships show up. You have enough men, you win. But not about you know the union of the naval and the land combat. Not about the whole plan of which islands to take when, which radar stations, because they didn't take every island, and that's what made the campaign so brilliant. It's called island hopping for a reason. They picked right, the ones. they skipped places, yeah. And that's that's interesting stuff. That's a, those are interesting decisions uh, that I would like to be in the position of making. Um, and I don't think we have many options of that. Um, for no, generally because, first of all, it's hard to get a computer player that makes that can play Japan smartly. Because Japan was kind of screwed. Uh, and computer AI is even screwier. So that would be the big problem, I suppose. Making the Japanese an interesting opponent. Yeah. But, hey. Well, especially, I mean, especially because, I mean, if you're the Japanese player, I mean, you're pretty much going into it with, well, 
It's about bleeding you. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't even let you play the Japanese play. I would just have it you can only play one side. Hmm. Which is perfectly fine with me. Yeah. Because I accept that, you know, some things are just you cannot make them interesting. And having your brains beaten out by B twenty nines all the time is not gonna be interesting. Well, maybe that you know, that's that's something that maybe there's too much emphasis on in war game strategy game design is like making it so that every side is playable, every faction is playable, and you know, trying to, you know, bring more to the consumer. I mean, again, I go back to the myth series. Yeah. You know, you can't you can't play the other side. There's there's one campaign. Yeah. Um it's it's a narrative and it's experiencing this campaign from the perspective of the men taking part in it. And it's a magnificent experience. And I think if you discarded that requirement that everything has to be two sided, that each side has to have a chance to win, and just said, Well, you know, sometimes people solved a very difficult strategic or tactical puzzle. Right. And it's not interesting for the people on the losing side of it or whatever, but it's fascinating to be on the side of agency. This is one thing that Bruce has been talking about for a very long time, about how one of the big problems with war games... The reason we see so many of the same battles in war games all the time is because war gamers want to... and war game companies want to have balanced conflict, and very few battles end up being balanced. Most of them are one side mowing down the other side quite easily. And uh, both strategically and tactically, it's there aren't very many fair fights uh, in history, and that's why we keep seeing the same battles over and over again. This rush to you know keep the keep the game interesting for everybody, uh, and not finding other ways to make the battle interesting. And I think that's something we can do with the Pacific War. Uh, so we're going to wrap up here uh, right now. It's a shorter podcast than normal, but that's because you know we punted more or less. <laughs> Uh, and I'm going to have Lost in about five minutes. Got to watch Lost. Woohoo! Uh, a strat- strategy game about Lost. No, that's not. No, that's not. That's not, that's not go there. No. Um, please fill the comments section with uh, strategy game settings uh, you would like to see, uh, historical or uh, drawn from fiction. I think you know Ender's Game. Uh, is Julian right that there's no good Tolkien game? Maybe we're missing something. Tolkien strategy game. If we're missing something, please let him know. I'm sure he'd love to hear it. Uh, and if you can make that fort game for us, we would love to play a good fort game. Uh, there will be links to some of the things we talked about uh, on the podcast at the post on flashsteel.com. Next week, our topic will be hopefully determined uh, before Tuesday afternoon. Say goodbye, everyone. Goodbye, Good everyone. <laughs>